All right, welcome to the Price Ball Podcast. Today is Friday, April 14th of 2023, and we have Sean Bear here. We're going to be talking about, well, a lot of stuff, because Sean's been here since the 1990s. And um, here's the here's the background. So we've been talking a lot about peak ATP, and right here on this podcast, we had Dr. Ralph Yeager to talk about it, and he was on episode 78. So you can go back and listen to that. And then thanks to the legendary Brian Shaw of Shaw Strength, he has a supplement company, Undefined Nutrition. They came out with a structure supplement that we talked about, which has PKTP, creatine, and HMB. And so where there were some questions about, about HMB. So Sean is the go-to on HMB. So that's what we're going to get into today. And uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself for us? And then let's get into it. Yeah, as you said, Sean Baer. Um, I've been in this industry since oh, early 1990s. Um, I started off on the undergrad side doing research with the... Uh, uh, the ingredient moved into grad school was doing work both in strength and conditioning as well as working in the uh, the lab and um, I kind of fell in love with the lab side um, pursued more you know advanced degrees in the research side but then um, the opportunity came knocking at metabolic technologies which was the original company started around the HMV technology so I kind of moved into a role of research and development and then ultimately more into the kind of transferring technology concepts and and, and marketing content um, from a science path to more of the commercialization. Um, and then fast forward, I've worn multiple hats within the company, um, have an MBA as well as my, my master aside uh, on exercise physiology and biochemistry. And, you know, funny, small world, you know, I've, I've worn multiple hats in this stuff. So I've also been a competitive athlete. So I was you know, a competitive thrower in track and field at Iowa State University, moved into powerlifting, uh, and those are the old days, um, and then uh, moved into strongman. So when you bring up Brian Shaw, uh, never to his level, but uh, on his way up, he went to a few of the same competitions that I was at. And, uh, you know, I'm quite older. Um, I would have to be in, I think, super masters at this point, but absolutely <laughs> loved that sport because the people I met. Um, but I always applied the nutrition and the background of my science um, uh, training along with what I would say is, is an understanding for my strength and conditioning life of training. So this area has always been, it's been a passion of mine since I was in high school. So I don't want to tell you how long ago that was, but still that was back in the weeder days with, you know, liver de desiccant and, and uh, 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 the old um, chewable protein tabs from weeder. I definitely age myself there, but you know, it, it's, it's where I've been and where I started. And, and it was really kind of fun to, to be part of the 1990s and uh, kind of build up of the research-based ingredients. So I've seen that all happen. Um, and I, I really feel like our industry has, there's a fork, right? There's people that have taken that road of research. And then the, the fork would be, you know, you still see these, these companies that market television and, and uh, uh, throw out claims that are, drug-related claims, and you've really seen this kind of split of our industry. But I think with things like Priceflow, what you guys have done is, like like we were talking about before, I absolutely love this platform because you actually look at the science, and as you said, you know, looking at HMB, uh, it's been around since the 90s, and some of the people that didn't know how to market back then using science and, and used it in a way that was the old-fashioned way, if you will. Um, but we've been sitting here um, grinding out the research on the human side, both sport nutrition, uh, political nutrition, and then obviously um, work we've done with animal nutrition. So 
looking forward to talking to you guys. I've been a fan of, of Ben's and fan of you, Mike, and it's, it's going to be fun to talk. I, I'm super excited for this, especially I didn't know that you had your MBA in business and stuff, but to kind of look at your, your background, I've kind of always said that there is a disconnect between um, the actual research and then what's actually even used in supplements, um, you know, in terms of sources, standardizations, uh, stuff, everything in, in that realm. Um, and then the fact that you're an athlete makes this even more fun because then in that application in actual competitive athletes is an even bigger drop. Uh, I have a big background in uh, in powerlifting as well. So I do have to ask, when you say in the olden days, were you a multiply lifter? So that's where I really kind of split away. Um, the So when I was in powerlifting in the mid nineties, there was this, you know, splitting off of, gosh, I think at one point I was laughing, there was 12 federations I could compete, oh, yeah. compete in within Iowa. Um, and I was not like, I mean, it's great powerlifting community here. But there were just so many things you had all these different little fractions so when i talk about using you know geared lifting i had single ply is all i had and i remember the first time i saw like a triple denim and then like the canvas i just look at these guys you know almost to exhaustion getting into their gear before they lift shaking my head going oh i think i'm gonna get my you know what kick today and it did i mean it, just, it was a i was you know i'm six five and i weighed 340 back then um, I thought I had a pretty good total, um, but man, as soon as they saw these guys that I could train with fairly well, what I would consider raw lifting in the gym with just straps and, you know, nothing else, what they would do with that gear, I just, it's like, nope, and I don't want to spend the time learning how to use brute or grease, uh, and I'm not trying to take anything away from it, you know, I I think what they do is it, it's on a whole other level of, of, of amazing talent and, and feats of strength, um, but I like I have a lot of us that are still in USAPL and that's kind of still where yeah. I like to consider, you know, the, the basis of the sport. Cool. Yeah. I've don't want to get too your stuff, man. I've seen some of your, and it, they're very impressive. Thank you. It was killer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too far into powerlifting because I don't, I don't, I mean, it just it kind of pales in comparison to other sports and fitness and stuff. It's kind of a sort of niche community, but talking to old school powerlifters is, is cool because it was back in a time when like, that equipment was just normal to get to, to squeeze yourself into a suit that helped you squat a thousand pounds was normal. You'd see that at the local YMCA. Uh, and, and nowadays it is like, I mean, it looks like you're putting on a diaper. So it definitely looks weird to normal fitness, yeah. uh, uh, enthusiasts, but always cool to talk to some old school people. Cause, uh, powerlifting back then was just a different kind of sport. Uh, yeah. I, I, if you follow USAPL now, it's, it's great because it's it's growing the sport. We have a lot of young people that are interested in lifting heavy, but man, yeah, I've seen good friends that are still in it. You know, Brad Gillingham and Brian Dermody, uh, they're very dear friends, and and watching what they've done to really grow USAPL, um, and obviously with the management and the people that are really in charge of the federation and what they've done, you know, I, I really think they're trained and they've done a great job of reaching the younger athletes through things like the Arnold and other uh, you know state level meets. Yeah. Yeah, I could talk powerlifting all day, and and by no means am I still implying I'm an athlete. I yeah, I still lift, but I don't touch the weights I used to. Uh, Any, probably good for all surgeries and repairs. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was lucky. I got to find something that isn't composite wood to knock on. But I was uh, I was able to yeah, I was able to get an 1800 total uh, raw and and not tear anything major in my life. So good for you. That's yeah, I got out. I got out with everything intact mostly. So, uh, <laughs> but. And on that note, I think HMB does have a lot of uh, interesting benefits in that sort of realm. So uh, I think 
I don't I don't know what the background is, but where the that, best place to start is with HSV. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to start. Like, first off, give yeah an introduction to the to the molecule. But we, you've been there since the beginning in the in the '90s, and we've kind of alluded to. I I, I tell people that um, price ball. I realized we needed to get into content uh, back in the the mid to late 2000s. I started seeing a lot of people asking for studies and asking for like actual research in the bodybuilding.com forums and the, the the brands at the time were just talking down to the consumers and there was an opportunity for us to talk science and here we are. So it seems like I would love to know how, like what was going on in the nineties uh, when, you know, talking about this cool novel ingredient and everything, it must've been like more wild west than ever before. So if you can kind of just, yeah, give us the, the, what is this ingredient? And then, um, and then, like, let's get back to the '90s. I want. I would love to just hear the stories, and then we'll like talk about the actual research. <laughs> sure, sure. So I'll tell you kind of the evolution of how it came about, and it's actually before the '90s. Um, Stephen Nissen um, was doing research, um, looking. He's an animal nutritionist um, by training, as well as a DVM. Um, he was doing work on branch chain amino acids, knowing that there was a, a protein balance benefit with with or potentially with branched-chain amino acids. And and why was obviously his work, and I'll try to fast forward this, but his work led him to leucine. And then looking at various feeding studies, he realized, well, you know, it's got to be some type of signaling as well. So he looked at the various um, uh, metabolites of, of leucine, and that's when he came across beta-hydroxybenmethylbutyrate. Um, and he started doing research. And again, all that research was in animal nutrition. Um, at the same time, and this is typically how this stuff works, at, you know, when you look at science, a lot of times it's, People look at it as serendipity, but it, typically it's the right time with the knowledge. So if one person is doing something in one spot because of awareness, typically there's other researchers looking at that same science from a different perspective. And that's what was going on at Vanderbilt University was Najib Umrad was doing clinical research on really looking at um, the metabolites of leucine or more importantly branching amino acids at that time and leucine um, in clinical settings. So outcomes related to muscle, we'll just refer to it as muscle health, but in things like, you know, post-surgery, pre-surgery, post-surgery outcomes, um, along those paths. So those two were kind of talking about their research at a, at a kind of a scientific symposium. And like, they always joked about at that time, they were very young in their careers and they were kind of put off to the kids table. Um, and they started talking about these downstream metabolites and they decided to collaborate again, this was in the eighties. So, Fast forward, you know, Steve was looking at the clinic or the uh, animal nutrition side, and Najee's looking at the clinical side, and they decided to kind of combine efforts and compare their data. And they started pointing more and more to this must be signaling, and this must be related to potentially this beta hydroxy vitamethylbutyrate. Uh, the problem was, is when they went to start manufacturing it at any type of scale to do large scale studies, they realized this could be very cost um, prohibitive. Um, so Steve working in nutrition, anything you add to feed production, when I talk about feed production, what I'm talking about here is making muscle, right? Growing beef, growing meat faster, growing pork faster. So you can either have economies uh, because there's less time to grow, or you have efficiencies or improvements where you have an improvements in immune function, whatever it might be, ultimately making a healthier am animal, bigger animal producing more return for the farmer producer. Uh, Najee's doing similar work, but it is about a healthier outcome of a patient. Um, and that seemed to be the path is like, okay, this human might be the better way to go because obviously the producers can't afford much more than fractions of a cent. At that time, it was incredibly expensive to manufacture. So 
lo and behold, all of a sudden there's another door knocking and it was the opportunity from people in the exercise physiology world and sport nutrition. Um, just at that time, it was again, very early 1990s, uh, 91. Um, they were really looking at science, um, of ingredients. And there were a few companies that were pointing at things saying, Hey, this stuff's in the literature of increasing muscles. It's safe in humans. Um, and that's where some of the original studies took the, the science from the clinical aspect, knowing it could be fed in human and seeing the outcomes that you see in the animal side, knowing there was something there on muscle detection. Um, and that's when they started doing some initial research in athletes. Um, and I would say moderately trained to highly trained individuals. Um, and then obviously novice individuals. And what they realized was at that time, protocol matters. And when I say that everybody here trains, um, but if you're the kind of person that is just going to the gym and it's been, you've been going to the gym doing the exact same routine for the past three years, you know, there's a reason why you've been plateaued, um, the overload training and, and, and proper periodization, all those things really make a difference. So that's where they saw this low hanging fruit was in uh, individuals that were more novice that have a huge training stimulus when they first start up, HOB became very much protective in nature. Even some of the data you see in uh, minimizing muscle damage through measuring things like CK or even through methylhistidine, uh, we would see decreases in muscle damage. So that's when it just exploded in the early 90s in research, not the sport nutrition side. And there were, you know, from probably about 90, 1992-ish to I would say probably 97, there were just several different studies that the company was funding um, to, to figure out what the story is. Um, we had potential customers that were supporting search uh, ideas. And then we obviously had independent researchers that we were supplying the material we could manufacture. So at that time, there were some you know key companies like TwinLab, EAS, uh, Metrics, some of these you know old pioneer brands that um, were kind of in that 1980s, early phase of marketing where, you know, hey, this stuff, this is actually have science behind it. And they just didn't know what to do. At that time, you know, with with creatine and, and some of the other things that they were really pointing at, even, you know, vanadyl sulfate and, and all this stuff from back then, it was, if you had a study, all of a sudden it was, it was legitimate. But the problem was they would take any kind of endpoint and just say, you know, this is the greatest thing. And, you know, they would do that hype marketing in the magazine was the science was still there and we were exploring, you know, what's the mechanism of action, what other applications can we have and move it from sport nutrition, then it moved to what I would call back into clinical. And that's the irony of this is that as we moved forward, sport nutrition was still an interest and we were still supporting studies and, and moving forward in that path. But it really evolved in from the mid to late nineties from just really sport nutrition to back to its roots. We were doing work in clinical nutrition with a formulation of HMV with glutamine and arginine and ended up being a product called Juvin, which Abbott still carries to this day. And that was for everything from wound healing, cachexia, um, AIDS wasting. Um, if there is a stressor that is causing protein synthesis to decrease and protein degradation to increase, that's where HMV shines the brightest. Um, so again, that's why I brought up the exercise side. And that's why we're here talking about it is if there's a protocol that is inducing um, a high amount of, of what do we consider, lack of a better term right now, just a stressor, uh, that's where HMV will shine its brightest. Because as we know, that overreaching or that that pushing is what really causes the benefits. But at the same time, it also causes the 
everything from microtrauma to a demand of greater recovery. And that's where HMB can really work is minimizing that muscle damage because we do see another mechanism that's related to the downstream metabolite of HMB is HMG-CoA. And then you see that as a precursor for cholesterol metabolism within a cell. So it improves the cell membrane as well. So we see those two, one, the dual effect on protein synthesis and reducing protein breakdown, but we also see that effect as more of a protective or just providing the substrate for further um, cell membrane, um, I'll just say integrity improvement. Amazing. That, That's kind that, of the story as a whole. And yeah, I didn't get into the uh, other applications, but we are moving ironically or coincidentally back into animal nutrition as we've grown the market through partners. Um, you know, obviously, you know, TSI is, is the company um, that with now metabolic technology started as this, you know, little R&D company based at Iowa State University Research Park. And it, it grew um, because of the sport nutrition market, as well as our, our work in the clinical side. TSI was our manufacturer starting in 2000. So that relationship and TSI really wanting to develop their own ingredients, we started collaborating on research. We started obviously collaborating um, on more than just our manufacturing. They were really helping us with sales. We just worked that group to go outside the U.S. and try and do sales. We were just, again, small, about seven, eight people working at R&D that were putting on a hat, you know, trying to sell the sport nutrition companies. Then all of a sudden, it, it started to really grow in clinical nutrition. Um, that's what we started spending all of our time researching was not only in, say, cancer patients and uh, AIDS patients that are suffering muscle wasting. We started looking at um, uh, just age being the stressor because we all, you know, some people will say, uh, you know, well, muscle health, it's not really a health category. It's a huge health category because not, I mean, look at the size of the osteoporosis or bone health category. Not everybody's going to get osteoporosis. Sure, you might have some bone density changes, but it's not inevitable. If you look at muscle loss, none of us are going to get out of this without experiencing muscle loss after about the age of 35. Um, you start seeing, you know, in our 40s, 50s, about 10 to 15% um, per decade of muscle loss. And that just, you know, it's almost like the inverse of compounding interest. You just start peeling off muscle. If you're not doing something to counter that, and that can be, you know, obviously exercise, but we know the compliance of that guys um, in an older adult population, it, it is very, very low. It's great if they do it, but that's not the masses. So if we can get people taking, you know, nutritional interventions and being well, about, you know, how they manage their muscle health in their thirties, forties, and fifties, as well as after they start losing a significant amount of muscle mass, that improves quality of life later. And that's where a lot of my research shifted to. And that's what the company did again through the two thousands. And now here we are again, with this partnership with TSI um, and ultimately the acquisition by TSI as one company, now we have that ability to really offer the ingredient, you know, in terms of economies of scale, uh, with just the size of the, the manufacturing capability, we're able now to go back finally to animal nutrition and not just like companion animals taking care of your aging dog or your performance you know, canine or equine. We're actually looking at, you know, production again, because now the cost is much more manageable because we make you know so much material. It's just basic economies of scale. We can finally start getting this into you know uh, production. And I know that's not your guys's interest, but that's kind of the evolution in life of where we started. It's funny we're we've come back to that in many ways, or our origins were, but our heart and our growth really came from sport nutrition. Awesome, thank you so much. Wow. Okay, actually, that is my interest. <laughs> um, I lo I love talking about animals. So I was going to ask if it is in some animal feed now. So that's 
that's really cool is how it's come full circle yeah. uh okay so there's a lot of vectors we can go into because there's a lot of demographics let's put the animals aside we love them and all but um so you have like people who are sick you have just you know standard aging and then we have the most of our demographic here are younger guys who want to build muscle and everything so it seems like there's some different applications first off it seems like you're you're combining um so I'm, I'm going to stick on the first two for a bit because you're combining glutamine and arginine. I think they're pretty big doses too. I'd have to mm -hmm. look at the study. Um, what was it? 14 grams? Yeah. So seven, of grams, seven grams of each and 1.5 grams of each would be taken twice daily. That was the original, but as the Juven formulation. Right. Uh, yep. And can you go ahead? I was asked if you can explain why uh, arginine and glutamine, because these are two other ingredients that have kind of um, been cast aside in the sports nutrition realm, even though we do right. know a lot of their, their various benefits. So, and I'll just throw another one in there. In some of the older adult data we were generating, um, we used, we removed the glutamine and we, we went with arginine and lice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's easier to start from that aspect because it's the most recent one. But in looking at kind of the, you always want to look at the pinch points when it comes to trying to work with targeted nutrition. And many times when you look at uh, protein metabolism, we, we really get enamored, especially because of sport nutrition. We start looking at, oh, it's branching amino acids, it's the essential amino acids, and it is, you know, we, we really like leucine. And obviously we do too, right? That's that's where our real research started was in branching amino acids and, and leucine research. But when you look at something like lysine, why do we ever add, add lysine to it? Well, look at the population we were talking about, older adults. Unfortunately, when you see the biggest impact is when their nutrition intakes um, have been compromised in some way. Um, and the rate limiting amino acid um, for, for protein synthesis is lysine. You, the three of us on this call, and probably most of the people listening to this, never have to worry about that. There's plenty of lysine in the diet from which you probably consume. But unfortunately, what we were learning in looking at some of the early studies with, um, with the older adult population and looking at the literature, what was really interesting, what we found is that sadly, many people that um, you know, in their 70s, 80s that we were wanting to recruit, um, they live alone. Um, and when you live alone, you tend not to make the same, you know, multi-macronutrient meals that you made when your family was there. So what happens? We found in the literature that a lot of older adults gravitate towards grain-based diet and poorly uh, managed grain-based grain -based diet. So um, it's easier to have a bowl of cereal or a piece of toast and then go about your day and Protein drops, everything kind of drops. And what we found was that lysine was a concern. There's a lot of, uh, they, although they were getting some protein in their diet, the quality wasn't the greatest. And one of the rate limiting amino acids that we identified, and it, and it comes from our background or many of the researchers that we worked with had animal nutrition backgrounds and they would point to lysine. So then when we you know looked at that, that was something we we kind of evolved the formula from HMB, glutamine, and arginine when we were researching um, for older adults, and we realized, okay, this is something we want to add, um, and we want to make it manageable from a composition and osmotic load. So you don't want too many amino acids if they're drinking this um, in the morning on you know empty stomachs. So we really want to make a balanced formulation. The arginine was in there with glutamine, and that's really the term that we were using, and a lot of the commu scientific community was using. This. If you look back to the work by uh, Adrian Barboul around arginine, and I believe it was Wilmore around glutamine. They were looking at these as conditionally essential um, kind of a situation. And arginine was, you know, it, it had, there was a lot of solid data around arginine in immune health. And again, let me remind you, we were looking at cancer, and AIDS wasting. 
So with some of the protease inhibitors and, and some of the things that were used around AIDS wasting, um, glutamine seemed like a very logical choice because you would see so much changes in glutamine levels um, in these individuals that were on these various protease inhibitors and even some of the um, chemotherapies. Um, what we find out later is that some of that change was actually uh, the breakdown of muscle. Glutamine would actually elevate, and that was probably because the other amino acids were being taken up and recycled. Uh, but we did see some interesting effects. And, and again, it goes back to brain, lung, and some of these important um, tissue types um, in terms of their glutamine utilization. So that really kind of all tied together, and we felt like that was the proper uh, amino acid uh, profile as long as, again, they were getting a normal protein diet, um, and normal being just about the RDA. Uh, many of these people that were going through, say, chemotherapy and radiation treatments, uh, appetite is suppressed. So you really have to be selective on making assumptions about you know overconsumption of protein above the RDA. Um, you have to really kind of hedge to bet that the targeted nutrition should really include specific amino acids that test that out. So this was definitely a combination of the of the thought process of Najib Bumarad, who again is is an MD and has that background in the clinical side, and that was his input um, that really formulated Juven and then ultimately Revigor, along with Steve Nissen, obviously his background in in protein metabolism, as well as John Rothmacher and John Fuller, two researchers that were at the very beginning days of doing the HMB research. They both are protein metabolism experts, along with Steve and Najee. So they were really the experts behind that formulation or those two formulations. And then we saw that bridge in. Um, interestingly, EAS launched a product called Muscle Armor because some of the same things that we were seeing in the clinical side, uh, EAS pointed at it and said, hey, as a next evolution after our first couple of HMB products, we really want to get technical here. And they, they you know, in their, in their kind of, uh, uh, to their credit, they actually formulated a very expensive formulation using seven grams of glutamine, seven grams of arginine, 1.5 grams of HMB, because they were really hoping to grab hold of that same uh, benefit. I mean, high doses of arginine we know have an effect as a, a growth hormone synchrogog. It's not, it's not down in the five gram or three gram. It's unfortunately it's up in the 20 grams. So if you really want to push that, you know, it's, it, it's possible, but I wouldn't go out and say, okay, you need to take 30 grams of arginine. If you're eating a quality protein diet, you're a very healthy young person. Uh, you're probably already maxing out that system. But when you're talking about people that are in a clinical setting or even a very aged setting, that additional arginine does help to make sure that, you know, it's more than just an amino acid. Right. That was going to be my next question. So we have like the sick individuals who there are some products already for them. Um, and then you have like standard aging, like my, my parents are, are just boomers still healthy and everything. They're not eating 20 ribeyes a day, but they're also, they're eating decent and everything. Are there still benefits for like just the, the standard, um, muscle wasting prevention of just using HMB or like in general, is it, it's tough to know if someone's diet, obviously. No, from a science standpoint, you know, let's really look at the literature. You know, literature tells us obviously, um, and I don't want to get into the argument of, of, oh, you just, you just overconsume protein and everything's fixed. Because to me, that is just the most ridiculous way to look at nutrition. Um, you know, we, and the other extreme is to look at the RDA. Yeah, I have the RDA, therefore I'm covered. When I'm 70 years old, I guarantee you the RDA one will be nowhere near what I need. Because again, I'm 6'5", and I still, you know, I'm not super lean, but I still walk around, you know, 265. There is no point in my life, you know, I don't think I'll ever be sufficiently covered by the RDA. Um, and I say that because 
if you're meeting your demand for the amino acids that are delivered from protein, right? Um, anything that's above that is just an extra calorie. It's, it's excess of calories. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, that's equivalent to excess calories. Um, if I'm going to eat, overeat something, I'd probably overeat protein from a, a nutrition standpoint. But with that said, you look at what we do right now for a lot of what I call muscle health. Um, we point at protein and say, consume, consume, consume. But we forget with older adults, there's a little bit of an impact going on here. We see decreases in the ability to really have that um, machinery, if you will, turned on. Um, we see in the literature, it's, it's very well established that you see an increase in protein breakdown and you see a decrease in protein synthesis. So I always like to equate HMB as, as kind of give the example or the anecdote, anecdotal kind of, um, or, you know, kind of story here of, of if you look at a, a house being remodeled, you can have as much um, construction material delivered there as you want, which is my analogy to protein. At the point, if you don't turn on the, the people doing the remodeling or the building and the kind of turn off the, the destruction that's happening on that house being an older house, you're never going to get anywhere. You can have all the building supplies sitting in the front yard and you're looking at a still broken down house. So what HMB does, and it, it's, it's not going to fix every problem, but it's just, it's those small shifts because with age, um, and it, it's situations too, but with aging, we see a slight decrease in protein synthesis and we see a slight elevation in degradation and that slight can build up over time. So what we look at is that net balance. What HMB can do is actually, you know, hedge those back up in the right direction where we turn on a little bit more protein synthesis, similar to what we see with leucine. But what makes HMB so unique is that it actually minimizes that protein breakdown side of it. So you're not going to stop it, nor do you want to stop it. Um, but we see that improvement in, in protein breakdown because that protein turnover is an important part of uh, protein metabolism. Ultimately, you know, the, the, the structural and functional elements of protein it's the health of that turns over or the health of it is determined by the turf, but you want it to be net balance or at least net build. If you're a bodybuilder, you really want to be net build. Uh, but that's the important part of this is, you know, net positive is, is where we always want to be when it comes to pro muscle health. But again, HMB is that, is that trigger or that signal, if you will, put it back in the right frame. And that's why it's, it, it's such a good fit with protein. We see it in, in plant-based protein. Um, I'm probably going to butcher the way you pronounce the last name, but it's Rittig. Um, if you look at the paper he did um, um, on comparing HMB and soy protein to whey um, versus soy, um, when you add HMB, it makes it more like the anabolic benefits of whey. The reason why is whey is rich in what? Leucine. So you see that protein synthesis go up. The beauty, again, is HMB also works on that protein degradation side. And that's the anti-catabolic. And that's was the original position was that nitrogen sparing, um, you know, anti-catabolic standpoint of, of HMB that was really marketed in sport nutrition. I love your, uh, construction analogy. Uh, in a previous lifetime, I worked at a brand and I used to travel the country explaining, uh, supplements to GNC managers. And this was in the kind of the turning point from, we went from being BCAA rich to be talking about, uh, full spectrum EAAs. And the analogy that I would always use was that BCAAs was uh, construction workers clocking in, like you can start the shift, but you needed those other six amino acids to be the, <laughs> the brick and mortar of that building. Uh, that's really, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, it, just at the time, you know, you're talking about minimum wage workers that needed to understand nutrition. So it was probably the best analogy that I could do, but I love that analogy. It makes so much sense. Uh, and 
I, I like how you talk about this because it, especially I, I'll talk about the sports nutrition side of things, uh, being in that, that net positive, that building mode is, yeah. is for some reason hard for a lot of people to understand. And most often when I work with athletes, I end up defaulting to like you were kind of saying, just overeating protein. You know, I, for most athletes, there's not going to be a, a negative benefit or there's not going to be a negative uh, reason for just eating more protein. Just, just if you're over consuming protein, most active athletes, if you're doing your job by being active and recovering well and hydrating and doing all everything and recovering, that protein is most likely not going to get stored as, stored as fat. In fact, I think there was a study about over consuming protein that said just that, but I, I'll let Mike cite that, not me. Um, but I... I most often resort to just saying, hey, you know, probably uh, overconsume protein. Like that's, that's You're not going to hurt by adding some more chicken breast or some more beef to your meals, maybe more eggs. That's the key part. What you're, what you're talking about there is lean sources of protein. Yes. Fortunately, if you look at what the people are doing when they see, oh, more protein's better, some of their choices. I mean, when I, again, this is, this, again, I want to give you the years because it ages me, but in the, I'll just say it anyway, in the, in the early 90s when we were doing... Uh, when I was working with strength and conditioning after I finished, you know, my own athletic career, um, I'll, I'll tell you right now, some of the food recalls that the athletes would give me, um, it's like, what'd you have for protein? Well, I had, you know, back then it was like a, a slim, like a, you know, yeah. jerky, but, but let me tell you back then it, it was very highly processed and it, even more so than what you see now, at least now there's healthy, you know, jerky choices and meat choices, but so many times athletes don't necessarily, especially um, I would say the ones that are kind of dabbling in it, they don't think about the quality of protein. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying everything has to be top shelf, you know, gold standard way or, or the, you know, what the muscle techs and on all these products, you know, the, the best of the best brands, I think those are excellent protein sources and you should be using those, but then they'll go to, you know, I don't want to any, uh, uh, fast food names here, but then they'll go to a fast food place and they'll spend, you know, $20 on garbage sources of protein. And I think if they raise an eyebrow when you have to pay, you know, 30, 40 bucks for quality protein. Um, if you really want to be a bodybuilder, really be in strength sports, let's start basic nutrition. Let's look at what we eat on a day-to-day -day basis at every meal. Let's look at quality protein we ingest and then look at supplements that are there to facilitate what your goals are. Um, so many times I hear people that are, you know, oh, I take this pre-workout and I take this and I take this and I take this. And it's like, what'd you have for breakfast today? Powder sugar donuts. Okay. That sounds like a great plan, but <laughs> Mike's heard me say this a few times in the last couple of months, but my life got so much better and my, my, I became such a better athlete when I stopped worrying about meal timing and macronutrient, like specificities and just eating good sources of good food frequently, yeah. you know, like, like and just smart supplementation. The supplementation is supposed to be that supplementing your diet. Yeah. Um, if, that, if that's your first choice where you go to, you know, look at what everybody from the, the, the community, sport nutrition community is doing at your gym or wherever you're at, online, social media, and you see them taking these products. You also need to pay attention to what they're posting and what they have out there of, here's what I also do for my training, my sleep, my hydration, my, my, my macronutrient, my micronutrient, and here are the supplements, among other things. Um, really keep that in context. Uh, and what you'll find is that, you know, there are, and, and also, what do you pay? If you're the complacent lifter or, or, or athlete that's saying, I just got to find something to help me get over this plateau, look at your nutrition, look at your sleep and look at your, your training first. And then when you have all those pieces put together, that's when supplements do their best. And that's what I would always argue is the story on HMB. Um, we had people say for a long time, 
oh, it only works in novices. Oh, the problem is if you look at some of the protocols of these studies that were done, it's laughable. I mean, it's like you guys, there's no progressive here. They start, it's an eight week study or four week study and they start at, at level X and they never really get above level X in their training, um, you know, their, their regimen in terms of, of stimulus or intensity. So if you're not causing that demand for adaptation, again, it goes back to my story. If you're not, if you're not, if, if the building blocks are there, there's no stimulus for protein synthesis and degradation to be somehow out of balance. And typically that comes from very intense training. So does it work in athletes that are already training? Yes, but they have to push the envelope of their training. And I would say the novices, it's even easier to see because any stimulus at that point is a stimulus to see that change. Um, that's why we see improvements again in aging. We see it in, in cancerocexia, AIDS wasting. We see it in intense downhill running and cardiovascular training, intense resistance training. You notice I keep saying intense when it comes to the training. There has to be a stimulus above and beyond. Um, if you take a 24-year-old healthy, you know, young person sitting on the couch or sitting at a computer screen um, and they're, you know, eating a relatively healthy diet, they're relatively healthy. I don't want to get anything about obesity or, or, or overweight or trying to lose weight. I'm purposely painting a picture of a very healthy individual just doesn't happen to partake in any type of, of intense training. They're just very active. Will HMB help them? Probably not enough to be measurable. Is it still having an effect? It's still there. It's still present, but they probably don't have a demand. They don't have a stressor. They are, they are trying to, you know, push themselves where you see the increase in protein breakdown. You see the increase in, in those, that micro trauma and damaging of the muscle fiber. There isn't a demand to really recover from, uh, just like there's not a demand for any of the other scenarios I painted. Um, if, if it's not there, you don't, I could say the same thing about most supplements. If there isn't, if there isn't a metabolic situation or physical situation that's going on that you need to supplement, it won't have that benefit. But most people that I think that listen to you, their goal is to put on muscle, to increase strength, to have better body composition, all these very basic foundational sport nutrition uh, goals or, or mindsets. Some people want to stand on a stage. Some people want to be the best on the platform. Um, and some people want to compete, you know, in, in, in an arena. Um, all these different things, that that mindset of pushing the body and and trying to optimize training, that goes back to what you guys talked with Dr. Yeager about, you know, with ATP. It's getting that extra rep, that extra, you know, rep at the end of that last set. That's the one. You know, Muhammad Ali always talked about he never started counting his sit-ups until after it started to be excruciatingly painful. Well, there's a hell of a mindset, right? I'm not condoning that everybody should train to over over, you know, reaching and and, and complete failure. Um, there's, but there's very practical, um, knowledge out there about overreaching and overtraining. And there's even more scientific knowledge about proper periodization, macro and micro cycles and setting the stage to have that. And if you use again, proper nutrition coupled with the right amount of, of sleep hydration, and then you supplement your diet with things like HMB, ATP to push that, uh, training HMB to recover from it. I mean, you're, you're hitting that sweet spot. And obviously, I, well, you have a bias because you, you know, you work around those two ingredients. I do. I do because those are the, those are the pieces that we started looking at on and we found to be very vital. I think there's some also great ingredients coming out on the performance side. Um, I think what, with what Ralph's team's done with Parazanthin, there's a great example of, of science showing what can be done. We have tons of people that don't like to feel on caffeine. Don't respond well to it. And I know you guys did a great job covering 
some of the work that, you know, Iovate Muscle Tech. We got cut off with a disconnect, but you were, you're discussing research, you're excited, Perizanthine, Ralph Yeager's doing a lot of, Dr. Ralph Yeager's doing a lot of great things. And then, um, yeah, where are we going from there? Well, I guess what I was going to say is that's a great example of, of using an ingredient. I know what Muscle Tech, what they've done with the product, the product um, euphoric. Um, I know a lot of athletes that are using that because they do have problems with caffeine. So there again is, I just want to point out that, you know, with everything else considered, you know, first, you know, you're, you're you got the right nutrition, right sleep, like hydration, proper training. These are the tools you can use, you know, the parazanthins, the PKTP, the HMB, uh, there's other nutrients out there. I point to them all and say, Hey, if there's science behind them and you're training the way that these studies show, um, these ingredients can provide benefit. That's, that's what you're ultimately wanting to go for here. So I, I do want to pull back uh, and kind of, uh, you, you started going down the, the hole of uh, intensity with training and protocols and studies. And I think this is a really great uh, discussion. Uh, we actually almost went into this at the beginning. I almost went there. We were talking about old school power of fears. We're talking about old school versus new school. And I was going to say one of the biggest things, especially I'm going I'm to rag on them for a second, uh, USAPL competitors, one of the things they always were, were saying to me when I was at the peak of my power thing around them was that like I they seem to have a, a, a slower progression in training. And and I was reaching heights very quickly. And to me, it was a difference of intensity in the gym. It was uh, knowing exactly how much volume I could recover from. It was knowing the exact intensity that I needed to take it to. And for most people, that intensity, I would say, is about two steps out of 10 further than they think they need to be already. Uh, and I know that intensity in protocols has been a hot topic for studies for HMB. Uh, over the years. And and I'll be honest with you, in preparation of the content, I actually don't know as much about HMB as probably Mike does. I definitely don't know as much as you do. And so I definitely would like to go down this rabbit hole on what were the protocols that were used for HMB? What should be the protocols used for HMB? And can you talk to the differences in intensity on how that works? Because one thing that I want to note that you brought up about Dr. Ralph Yeager with his studies, when we talked to him last, he was talking about the protocols they put people through for PKTP, where they were training these guys as like competitive power. They, they had them on like, I think, an eight to 10 week peaking protocol where it was overreaching. There was a rebound effect. They allowed them to test it. And the question to me really is, if the placebo group is getting more gains than most people in the gym already are, like, is that an issue for the, the, the findings? Because to me, I would love to see everyone training at that level. But does that... I don't want to say that that creates an issue, but no, no, it, 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 take it away for sure. Yeah. So this is, this is exactly the issue that you have. Um, when, when you have people that haven't kind of got, you're, you were a competitive athlete, you were a power lifter at a very top level. Um, and you know what it takes when you said that those two steps forward. So many times we look at research protocols, we think, oh, this is a resistance training protocol. You look at it and think, my gosh, you know, this is it. This is something that I would probably use and consider a maintenance on a deload phase for a power lifter or a bodybuilder or a, a collegiate athlete or a professional athlete. It's it's just not, there's not a stimulus there. It's like, all right, so where do you remax it? So that, that study you were talking about that, that Dr. Yeager was talking about, um, that was the overreaching study we did with HMV as well. Um, and that was a protocol that we worked collectively together on. The reason why is that we know you have to push yourself. So when you look at HMB, the original research and why I said we were looking at novices is because that's where we, we wanted to start is if someone's starting to 
do a training protocol, you really want to make sure that there's a proper amount of stimulus, or in this case, um, uh, I would say the stressor is there. Um, not only do you have the stressor of trying to recover from the session, but you also have that microtrauma that, you know, what eventually leads to delayed onset muscle soreness. We want to see if we had an effect there. We knew we had a mechanism that probably worked on that cell membrane integrity. Um, and if that's improved, in theory, you should recover faster and have a healthier uh, muscle cell. Um, so with that said, that's where we started. But then we'd have people say, oh, it didn't work in trade individuals. So you start looking at the protocols and you start doing more research on the studies themselves. For example, we did a study, or we, 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 we read a study on HMB. It was published in the journal Strength and Conditioning Research. Um, and we were looking at it going, wow, these guys, they trained pretty hard. There was no effect. So as scientists, we asked the question of, yeah, the protocol seems very solid. Let's do a little bit more investigation here. When we investigate, we bought the material they said they used. It was one of the few studies that, you know, they were trying to say, oh, look, it doesn't work. We analyzed the same material they bought off the market zero HMV in it. So the studies that you point, you know, people point to and say, oh, see, this one said it didn't work. One of two things has historically been the issue. One, it was, well, there's a few things, but, you know, being underpowered, we don't want to get into that. That's more of a scientific conversation. Uh, when you see trends, they'll point to it and say, oh, it just didn't work. Well, it was an underpowered study. You only had 10 subjects, you know, but you needed this if you really look at the analysis of, of what you put them in through. Um, but let's put that off to the side. There were some studies that didn't really have HMV in the product they thought was an HMV product. Again, that was only a one that we know of, but that still happened in the, in, in the scientific literature. Another one is the, it's the biggest one is protocol. Um, so many research scientists look at resistance training protocols and say, as long as we're increasing it by X percent a week, it's, it's progressive. But as you know, uh, Ben is, is especially with a powerlifter mindset and bodybuilder mindset, if you want to make it real to world, it's going to be more like that overreaching because people that really are trying to push themselves and do it in a natural way, and they really want to do it through nutrition and all those pieces I talked about, you need something like HMV to help you recover. And you need something like HMV to keep that in balance. You also need things like, um, you know, the, the, I don't refer to them as energy drinks. I refer to them as more of a stimulant drink. So hmm. things like caffeine, all those little pieces that helps you push that little bit more. Peak ATP, it helps you push that extra rep. And that extra rep is where you really make that difference. So when we look at protocols as research scientists, we've always wanted to do studies that, you know, we look at a uh, running study. We could have done a study that was a very standard, you know, person going out for a jog every night after work kind of protocol. You're not going to see much there. What did we do? We did a very progressive volume approach with the downhill running component. Why? It induces a lot of damage. And guess what? Those athletes, they improved their anaerobic threshold where they improved things like, uh, actually, let's just talk about the very one up front is they had reduced muscle damage. They had, um, they had an improvement in recovery or the readiness to perform. And then moving forward even further, when you start looking at the benefits, we saw an improvement in VO2 max. We saw all these different things, but that's because they had a training stimulus. So going back to your, your you know, kind of reference there, well, the placebo group even gained. I would argue that's kind of the point of training, right? We, we want to optimize whatever we can do. And if the placebo gains and this nutrient, whatever nutrient we're using, if that can provide a benefit either to improve intensity so we can train even harder than that or recover from that or whatever other, you know, uh, benefit you're looking for, your, your product can, can, can bring to the table. I want to test it in a place where the placebo is making gains. And then what can I do above that? 
What really scares me is when you see some of these training protocols and they say, oh, this product didn't work. You look at the placebo and they didn't, over eight weeks, they didn't make it much of a change. Well, what kind of protocol would you have kept from trading on a, on a program that gave you, you know, three increase in, in any variable over eight weeks? I absolutely not. Enough. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> so, so why do we accept it in the literature as being, oh, this is, this is a protocol. It's not a good protocol to test what your model is. And we're trying to test a very, again, the ATP studies that have been done, they're trying to test to see if you take this product, can I get that extra rep at the end of that set? If I push my maxes or push my, my, my relative effort relative to my max farther and farther each session. And then our HMB studies, can I recover from that, that intense protocol? If you see a drop off in strength with the placebo and you see a, a maintenance or even an increase, slight increase during that overreaching with HMB, there you go. You know, it's having that effect. Um, but unfortunately, you know, once you have a study out there that someone says, oh, see, this one doesn't work. That's the one that becomes the flagship of, see, this is a, this is a bad product. So it seems to me with these studies, like there are, there are two real setups that we need to be looking at for, for a PKTP we're looking at, we're trying to give these guys an alternative fuel and we need to see how well that fuel works. But for HMB, it seems like the cards have been stacked against our athletes because we're talking about putting them into a deficit in terms of giving them some sort of stimulus and seeing how quickly they can come back from that. But if we're not giving them enough of a stimulus and they're already eating well, if they're, these, hopefully these guys are trained athletes, there's no reason for this HMB to help them recover in a better fashion. So to me, it seems like we need this intensity. We need to see that the placebo group is seeing gains on their own to see if this HMB can even even fathom to come back from that. But I think it's that goes with with HMB across all applications. There's got to be a stressor. The stressor could either be growth when you're looking at say animal nutrition, you're trying to put on more muscle or or more meat production. You're 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 trying to push that envelope. So that's where HMB shines. Um, there's also I don't, we don't get all the animal nutrition stuff. But there's also benefits to you know the the outcomes on body weight on on litter size. And that again, that's a stressor. That is an incredibly stressful environment when you're when you're trying to have multiple animals in a single litter. It's stressful. Um, you look at the the references I made before: wound healing, cancer, cachexia, um, age-related muscle loss. All those different elements, right? Those were those have a very significant stressor. HMB in downhill running, HMB in intense resistance training, HMB in individuals that are just starting an exercise protocol for the first time. Those are all intense stressors. I don't want to compare them to the same stressor of a, of a, you know, condition or disease, but it's still, what is putting stress on that muscle physiology, if you will. And it goes right back to my story about the building blocks. You can have all the building blocks there, but if that stressor or that, that shift in that balance isn't there and you're not trying to mitigate muscle catabolism or breakdown, HMV won't really shine bright. Um, and, and that's okay because you know, someone says, oh, I can't believe, you know, you, you have, you have, uh, you go out there and talk about how HMB in some situations doesn't work. Well, but I'm a research scientist. You want me to lie and say, no, it works all the time. It does. It technically is doing what it's supposed to do at all time. It's just whether or not the physical needs it. Um, and I mean that by saying our, if our muscle does not need the HMB at that time, it's not under any stress. What good is it going to do? And matter of fact, what good is most supplements going to do? Um, and then not to mention, what does excess protein do? If I'm sitting in front of uh, a, a screen for, you know, 24 or 16 hours a day and laying in bed eight hours a day, and I'm taking some type of muscle building supplement, it's not going to do anything. I've got to train. 
um, again, I go back to your, your, your background in powerlifting and what you said about, you know, the placebo gaining, I always go back to that. That's the, I'd like to read what the placebo did and almost be first to say, was this model sufficient to do what their goal was to do? If I'm trying to increase the benefit I get from resistance training or endurance training or anaerobic, um, high intensity training, anything that's in there. I want to look and see what the outcomes were or what the endpoints were, the hypothesis was, but I want to see what the placebo or the control group performed or how they performed. And then I could go back and say, okay, what did the intervention do? Did it provide greater benefit? We, we see data in sleep, right? There's, there's all kinds of data um, in, in collegiate athletes now, and it's very remarkable data. There's a curve in terms of injury and, and uh, a prevention of injury or mitigation of injury um, and incidence of injury when you look at sleep time. Uh, same kind of thing. Is it is it looking at the the control side of that? Well, unfortunately, is a lack of sleep, um, and we have that data set because many college athletes experience this. But as soon as they start getting that in line, you see some amazing effects on recovery, and and that really comes down to the biggest risk for soft tissue injury is your ability to recover and the ability to maintain that joint stability from you know adequately recovered muscle mass. Um, and we start looking at those things and, and obviously you have a whole bunch of impact factors, but when you start talking about science, you should always, you know, look at what the placebo did in your model and then kind of go from there. Okay. Wait, so I have to ask, uh, so you said that there was a study on HMB where you saw there weren't gains and you sent it out for testing and there was no HMB in the material that was studied. Are you telling me that that there's a study floating out there that, says that HMB doesn't work, but there was no HMB in the material. Yep. And we wrote a letter to the editor and the national or the journal of strength conditioning research was, you know, obviously it's a, it's a great journal. The next issue that was in there, um, and it was included online as well. Um, our letter to the editor saying this didn't have it. We had test results and everything. So is it used much anymore? No, because our letter is sitting right behind it and, and it should be in all the other um, you know, publications after that reference that is, it says we tested this and it's not there. So was this a finished product that was, I'm sorry, Mike, was this a finished product that was used in a study and you tested the finished product? <laughs> so they put on there the brand they purchased and we have a full analytical lab that we, we have, and we also have what we work with. So a third party lab, um, got the samples. We took it in the lab and said, this is the one they did the study on just trying to make sure. Cause Honestly, there were there are companies since the beginning of HMB have been knocking off HMB, and we just wanted to make sure that uh, let's make sure this is, we didn't know this company. They should have been purchasing it from us, and we thought we don't even know this brand. What is in this? Because we've seen material that I mean, I hate to say it, there's material in the marketplace that we see higher than normal levels of mold, um, and you can't have that in ours because one of our quality, two our methods of manufacturing. Um, don't use water, they use, you know, solvent. So it's a completely different synthetic manufacturing process. We see stuff in there that there's no way should be on the market, but unfortunately it's there. Um, and we were worried about that at that time. We're thinking, oh, this is just a lower quality and that's why they didn't have the effect. We did the analysis or I didn't, one of the colleagues did and, and, and some of the additional third party testing we did, we actually had to the point where it was, well, let's retest this. Maybe we did something raw. Nope. No HMB. Wow. Okay. So that study, well, first off, we are going to need links for that study for the show notes. That's, <laughs> wow. Um, so <laughs> that study is still, it hasn't been retracted though. Like 
by the journal. I'd be, I'd have lawyers you, all over this, but when you have, well, we did. So when you have letters to the editor, um, typically it's put in there and then that is, that is kind of like, in essence, the, we're talking about the print form. So once it's there until that letter comes out, it's not really, it's not removed. It's still in the print form. So that print form existed. Our letter went out and yeah, we're real happy to connect you with that. And you can actually look it up in the journal of strength conditioning research. Um, Dr. John Rothmacher wrote the letter to the editor and, and yeah, it, what's around what year was this? I have to go back and pull that up. It was, uh, I want to say mid 2000s. Okay. Yeah. Wild. That was yeah. Wild times back then. And, uh, yep. So glad that the industry has gotten so much cleaner. Like a lot of the stuff we just couldn't be doing if, if like there are so many, you know, there's so many better brands now. And there's so many good manufacturers who now are doing the right thing. So good. Um, okay. So take it a step further, you know, right now, I think in our industry as a whole, the biggest thing we have to make sure we're being, um, I guess, observant of is what are the, what, what's the material that was tested? Cause a lot of the safety and toxicity studies that have been done over time, um, on say, for example, she's H and B because I know that one so well. That's based on material that we did. And and so many so many times I've heard it as, oh, well, you know, you guys are the ones that fund this study. Well, guess what? Most companies don't just volunteer. Hey, I'm going to go do a study on somebody else's ingredient. Or you know, a lot of these studies cost a lot of money. So who's going to invest in it? The companies that have the rights and the the benefit of seeing what their their pro their product can do. Um, and I say this because all the safety and toxicity research that's been done over the years on HMB is using our HMB. Um, and I would say the same thing about the efficacy, even pointing out the fact that there are studies out there that have bought stuff off the shelf. And unfortunately, when researchers buy stuff off the shelf, their purchasing department says, well, here's a cheaper version. Let's get this. Guess what? That's the reason the cheaper version is cheaper. <laughs> it doesn't didn't have HMB. And there's, there's other things that are like that, right? So when you look at the lion's share of the safety and toxicity and safety and efficacy data that's been done over the past three decades on something like HMB, it is on our material. So although there might be other stuff they can source, just a little cautionary tale. I don't know what else is in there. I don't know what residual solvents are in there. I don't know if there's ever been a one safety study on any of those. You know, our self-affirmed grass, all of the safety data that's been published over the years is based on our HMB. And that is actually something that our company's doing um, along with some amazing associations, the MPA, uh, what Dan Fabricap does, I mean, that, he works hard to make sure that our industry is well represented in, in Washington, D.C., but also looks out for, hey, there's rules out there that there are companies that don't follow. Um, there's, you know, great, great associations across, you know, our industry. Um, and they're really trying to take a proactive approach to protect our industry. I think what you guys are doing with the research side of being in front to mind to the consumer is so important because so many times the, what gives us a black eye in this industry are companies that just slap something in a bottle and put a label on it and sell them out of the garage. And you guys are saying, wait a minute, let's check for quality ingredients. Let's check for consistency in manufacturing. And let's make sure what they say is in the label is actually in the ingredient. And let's make sure that works. So, um, that's again, that's why I was pretty excited about coming on here is, is, you know, I appreciate what you guys do because as a company that's faced in research, and knowing where the industry has been over the years and where it's going, this is, you know, we need to keep checks and balances and it comes from, it comes from internal. It's not just going to be FDA and FTC, which I'm, you know, I'm glad they exist. Trust me. But at the same time, you know, this has got to come from internal too of consumers saying, I'm not going to buy a product that doesn't have the real stuff, or I don't want to 
work with a brand that doesn't, you know, match what's on the label. Um, and that goes for everybody from the influencers all the way down to the consumer buying their first product. You know, our power is in our pocketbook. I've always said that when it comes to purchasing and, and H&B has a very long lifespan because it does produce results. It just can't work miracles. If you're not going to go in the gym and lift and train, I don't care what you, well, let's not go to a dark route here, but I don't care what you take from a dietary supplement standpoint, nutritional standpoint, you're not going to have an impact if you don't have a stimulus to, to train. Can we uh, get a little bit more granular then with these studies and ask, uh, over the years, there have been, there obviously have been studies that say that it works. There have been ones that, that, that don't. Can we talk a little bit about the studies that do show benefits? Can we, can we talk on a specific basis, maybe what was done? What were the, what were the claims that were able to be pulled from that? Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, some of the early studies, there was a, a, I think it was 1996. That was one of the first real training studies. And that was actually in football players. Um, and it was, I would say it was two real points of that study. One was looking at dose and it was very simple in nature. It was zero, 1.5 and three grams of HMV a day. And there were increases in muscle strength. There was increases in, in muscle mass. And there was more importantly, at that time, we were just trying to figure out mechanism. We saw a lot of the indicators of a reduction in muscle damage, which allowed the, the, I would almost refer to it, um, as that readiness to train again. So what you observed during that study is that the, the individuals that were on the HMB, um, they were able to push that training a little bit farther, a little bit faster because of their readiness to train. Um, and they were recovered and therefore you had, again, it's, I think a dual benefit is faster recovery and a, a greater ability to recover from frequent training gives you a greater training, training stimulus. Um, so yeah, that goes back to increased muscle mass, increased strength and improved recovery. Um, and then fast forward a few years later, we started doing some work in both men and women. Um, I would say more of the novice group. And that's where we saw the greatest, uh, impact were those individuals that were really pushing that envelope, um, because they were not only novice, but they were also on a progressive overload training protocol. So we saw an improvements again in muscle mass and muscle strength. And again, this reduction, this blunting, if you will, on CK levels where the placebo group had enormous amount of muscle damage. Um, we moved into some endurance type protocols. I mentioned one or two of them already before, um, but we saw improvements in VO2 max lactate threshold at the time to lactate threshold. In other words, that, that, that burning sensation from really pushing your, 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 that anaerobic window, you know, it's those multiple reps or even think of it like going to that 200 range on 200 meter run or sprint. Um, to a 400, that kind of window of time and intensity, what we observed was that you had this push of that lactate threshold where you see that upswing or that hockey sticking if it was pushed out the time and at the rate of that gain. So uh, that was simply because HMB improved that protein synthesis in the cell. And not all protein is just um, functional. Some of it is actually either structural and there's also components to having the ability to um, metabolize and, and deal with energy substrates. So a healthier muscle is a more efficient muscle. Um, and that's what we observed is that that efficiency or that greater muscle mass allowed for more muscle fibers to be firing, um, in sequence and, and in series, and then you end up getting less lactate accumulation and then threshold, um, is pushed out. So all those little pieces really point to it as, again, if you have intense training, you have that recovery. Um, and then, you know, if you want to dive deeper into some of their training protocols, we had a, the overreaching study 
um, that was done. And, and there's been numerous ones between that and previous uh, mentioned ones of the 90s where various training stimulus, most of them, again, even the ones that I would point to and say, although they used RHMB, we really didn't have any say in the protocol. Um, if you look at them, there's there's always a component, even the ones that people have said, well, see, this isn't, doesn't work. You look at some of the benefits on muscle damage, because one thing we know, even moderate increases in intensity um, typically elicit muscle damage. You see an increase in CK. And what's been very consistent over the years is this, this blunting um, of muscle damage with HMB supplementation. So although the protocol might not have been as sufficient to really push and continue to you know see the outcomes that we would expect from an intense protocol, those moderate protocols still produce benefits on muscle damage and recovery that that we still point to and say the data don't lie. I mean, the results are the results. Data are data. Uh, we actually did a study at older adults. Uh, was a year long study, and it wasn't in a training protocol. It was just you know free living. Um, what was really interesting about it is that and it led to future patents and other research was that although we in the HMB and arginine lysine, like we started off talking about, although they gained muscle mass, only about half of the subjects on the HMB group, we saw an improvement in function and strength. And we really try to figure out, well, what would be the cause of that? We know there's a disconnect, um, you know, as we age the unit fiber and, and efficiency and, and, and everything there that. To look at somebody and say, oh, they have a lot of muscle, they're going to be strong. And, oh, they don't have very much muscle. They don't have much mass or much strength. Um, you know, that's that's kind of simplistic thinking. We've, we've all seen, especially in the world of powerlifting, we've seen very small people that produce some very large totals. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's per unit of fiber. But with age, we see this, you know, this kind of separation where it's the neuromuscular junction or it might just be the efficiency. Whatever it might be, we see this disconnect. So we thought maybe it might be something there. Uh, but then through analysis and through some other work we were doing, we happened to look at vitamin D um, levels in these people. And what we discovered was, guess what? If you're insufficient in vitamin D, it's not just a HMB related phenomenon. It's a muscle function. It's actually cellular function issue. So when we talk about vitamin D deficiencies, we're talking like rickets. We're talking, you know, the, that 15 nanograms per, per, per milliliter kind of level. Uh, when we start talking about sufficiency, it's 25, 30 and above. Uh, and definitely we see that sweet spot in a lot of the benefits of, of vitamin D outside of just bone. Health. So when we went back and did a retrospective analysis, which was published by Dr. John Fuller, you look at that data set, it's very, very compelling. If you have vitamin D below that, that sufficiency level, you don't see the improvement in function. Although you saw an improvement in mass, you didn't see the improvement in function. So then we, then again, the reason why I bring this up is because you know, a lot of people would point to that and say, oh, look, H and B didn't increase strength and function in this population. But as research scientists, you know, I was taught by some great researchers. You know, again, I brought up Steve Nissen's name and I brought up Najee Boomerat. There's been a whole host of, of researchers that have influenced me. Rick Sharp, um, you know, there's uh, just just out, you know, uh, Joey Antonio, all these people. I always appreciated the way they thought because they pointed out of, well, why? The data are the data. Either you did something in your study or there's something in your study you're not seeing. It's not what your hypothesis, you know, or your null hypothesis, the, you know, whatever you thought was going to happen, if it doesn't happen, you got to start asking why. The truth is there. Right? It's deep. Um, and you, it's your job to figure out where that, that information is kind of pointing. And when we did that retrospective analysis and then we went on and did a proactive approach, guess what? When we supplemented vitamin D and made sure everybody in the HMB group was sufficient, there we got that, that benefit across Everybody who gained mass also gained strength and function. Um, and that's when you start scratching your head and go, okay, 
where does this all apply? So we started doing work in, again, we're trying to look at a bigger, uh, obviously it's a benefit to our company to have a bigger, broader audience in, in consumer group, right? So we started looking at middle-aged women. Um, we're a group that we had done some work in, in, in men that were maybe skewed a little bit older than our typical training study. Um, and we really wanted to answer the question of, you know, in, in just a free living middle-aged woman, does H&B provide benefit prior to, you know, reaching that stage of, of older adult where you start experiencing greater repercussions of muscle loss? Can you have an earlier intervention? Is it bigger? One of the really interesting things that this study just published, um, we saw an improvement in intermuscular adipose tissue. And why is that important? Because when we read, and we've always seen an improvement in body composition with HMB, right? We've seen improvements in, in increasing muscle mass, but also a result in a decrease in body fat. Um, and it's not just a relative, it's an absolute. So we actually see decreases in fat mass, but that's always been subcutaneous measurement. When we saw the decrease in intermuscular adipose tissue in this study, it really made us start thinking, okay, this makes sense to some of the mechanism work that's been done over the years. Um, we know H and B and cell culture work um, increases protein synthesis and reduces protein breakdown in in a muscle fiber. You know, in a, it, again, this is outside the body. This is cell culture work. We also saw an increase in beta oxidation in muscle fiber, um, but in fat, we see an increase in lipolysis when H and B is present in the cell culture. So if that's the case, if you think about everything, if you think of the old you know sigma biochemistry chart, nothing works in silos. If you Flick something on here, you probably need to flick something on here. Um, so in looking at that, if you think about how, if HMB is truly sparing protein breakdown, and we utilize that many times during um, uh, states of fasting, we're doing calorie restriction, we know we lose muscle as we lose fat, right? So if our body is somehow protecting that loss by having HMB pr present, what does it make sense it should also do? If HMB is signaling to turn on protein synthesis and maintain and prevent protein breakdown, it better be turning on something else to utilize as fuel. So, you know, in, in that, that perfect system that we have, that we live through, um, in our biochemistry, you see H and B also serving a signaling role in turning on, um, lipolysis and increasing beta oxidation. So if you're preserving that muscle, you can also think about it as freeing up fat stores or, or, you know, fatty acids for utilization by those muscles. So that makes sense why we see this change in IMAT or intermuscular adipose tissue. And when you look at that, why is that so important? That's part of the, the whole entire system that we start talking about metabolic disorders and metabolic changes as we age. Because when you start seeing high amounts of intermuscular adipose tissue, what you also typically see is a change in insulin um, sensitivity or, or building up insulin resistance. And then there's a whole host of other issues that come about. And then you're also losing muscle. And then eventually you get to start looking at sarcopenic obesity and some of these other things. So again, it's it's it always comes down to if you chase what the data is telling you, you will find typically the the real story. Um, and that's why yeah, I like looking at the data that says, oh, H and B, you know, in, in this case, really works great in the novice trainer. But why? That, that doesn't make sense. It's just novice. It's not just novice. Got to have that training. You've got to be pushing it. It's just easier to elicit that change in a novice person because any stimulus is more than what they're doing. And I know, Ben, when you were powerlifting, as you said, you kind of go two steps further than what you think you can do. And the sad part is you got to do that two steps further the next time you train squat, bench, deadlift. And then, oh, by the way, you got to do it again. The next time you got to go those two steps further. It's it's a painful process to be a powerlifter or any athlete or anybody who's trying to put on muscle mass above what you're, I don't hate to use the word set point, but 
what we're predisposed yeah. to carrying around, it, it takes a, a very large amount of work to get above that. And then to get above that, it takes even more. So that's why, again, I always point back to proper nutrition first with your macro and micronutrients. It goes back to hydration, sleep, proper training, more importantly, proper recovery. And then, it, then when you use those supplements, that's where it becomes key to have the right ones that are meeting the goals of what you have. If you're just on a maintenance program, will HMB help? I don't, you know, I don't want to say it's not going to do anything for you, but if you're not really pushing yourself, you know, that's the problem with some of these protocols, it's just not a stimulus that's going to make much gain. And that's why the placebo groups don't see much change. I think the, oh. the concept of the maintenance that you said, like that, that specifically tells me HMB probably won't work because if you are going into this with the mindset of maintenance, you're probably not going in there with the, the intensity that you need to make a change then. Right. So uh, I, I, I totally, I, I love what you said. Uh, I, I love, I love this whole thought process. I think that with a lot of, um, our data that we look at, I, I see studies all the time that I complain about, but I, I want to kind of change my tone now with what you're saying, because in a silo, like you're saying, bad data is a bad thing, but when we then can, we can put that against another set of data where things are controlled for differently. We can find the, the, the Venn diagram and see what works. I guess my only question, because I, I know I heard Mike, Mike had something you want to say too. My only question that I want to ask uh, before we get moving into Mike's uh, subject was just, how intensely do you guys control for, for, uh, for diet? Were you keeping these guys? Were you giving them a plan? Were you just asking what they were? Love you know? that question. Brilliant question. So every study, we've always had different researchers that have suggested different things. So one of the first studies I mentioned, that, that one with the football players, they actually, these poor guys had to come in every single meal um, and eat with our researchers. It, it, it was brutal from a researcher standpoint, and it was brutal from them having to sit in the same room with the same group of guys. And it wasn't like it was in a, a, a dining hall. It literally was in a exercise physiology classroom. They were brought their foods in trays and they had to sit there and eat it. Um, and that was not only recorded the weights and everything that was brought in, but it was also everything they didn't eat. And, you know, <laughs> it was, it, it was, a, I, luckily I didn't work on the food side, but that's complete control, right? And those studies to do this, this day and age, I mean, you're looking at, I can't even imagine the cost because you're really in almost like one of those, you know, uh, like like Vanderbilt has these research centers where they can really control every element. And the costs are just so, they're unrealistic for people to do nutritional studies for say, it's like a, like a company looking to do a nutritional intervention with a product. Um, now, you know, what else have we done? Typically it's diet recalls and, and just trying to get a feel for what they're eating before we do baseline test, testing. And then, you know, the old, you know, please make sure you're maintaining your, the same type of dietary regimen you've done before. One of the biggest problems you always have, and it brings in variability is you're talking about college students. So, you know, it's like, oh yeah, my diet was the same, except, you know, last Saturday I didn't eat a single thing, but I consumed my calories in alcohol. Like, oh great. This is not going to really add a variable that we can want to deal with in our studies. But for the most part, you know, we have found where we've done research. Um, a lot of times if they recruit from exercise physiology departments, the undergraduates, they, I don't want to imply that they all live a healthy lifestyle compared to the other college students because we know that's not true. But again, if you if you get them engaged and you really teach them that this is this is for this purpose and this is why we're doing this study without somehow breaking blinding, um, it's important. And you know, there's been other problems. You know, we've heard stories of of you know subjects selling their supplements um, to their friends, and you know, you do you do analysis on them, and you're like, we have to throw this subject out because. Their plasma levels of HMB are, you know, 
background noise. They didn't take the supplement and they were in the treatment group. So you kind of, you know, there's all those headaches, but you know, that, that is our best effort is always to control that. Now there's been some studies too that have said, okay, well, we know protein intake in college students is a challenge. So we'll give, you know, uh, at least a serving or two to both the control and, or, you know, in essence, it becomes a control. It's all like a placebo, but it kind of is still a placebo because they're both getting, it's just another um, component to their, their regimen they're on because the true placebo then would be whatever you're masking or, or matching to your HMB supplement. Um, but a lot of times they refer to those as controls. Uh, but again, it's just another element or, or component to the study. Uh, a protein in the HMB group and a protein in the placebo group because these might have been individuals that don't really think about diet, don't really consume the right amount of protein. And it's just a way to make sure that we're all at least hitting the RDA um, or at least some recommendation in the literature that supports, say, um, one gram per kilogram of body weight kind of scenario. Um, so for the most part, we've always tried to, uh, I think that comes from the randomization and blinding too, is that you're pulling from the population. So what is in one group, in theory, if it's powered correctly, it should be in the other group. But unfortunately, there's always variables that tie in. Uh, you know, and one thing I want to point out too is, you know, one of the really, I think, excellent effects of HMB is is this mitigation of delayed onset muscle soreness. When you do less damage, you have less delayed onset muscle soreness. So, so many people, you know, benefit from that, not just the intense traders, but even some weekend warriors, uh, you know, people that really escalate uh, their training maybe because of like they get together with a group and do strongman on the weekend, um, you know, and they're, they're shot to get back in the gym for three or four days. HMB has been shown to really mitigate that, that, that damage. Therefore you don't have to have that um, kind of recovery period, extended recovery period from that excessive damage. And I bring that up as another example of the study. We had older adults in one of our studies showing up with these weird, like fluctuations in muscle damage. And obviously we weren't seeing that, you know, in the later data sets when we did analysis of the HMB group, um, where we're going back and looking at it. And what was really kind of cool, and it's just goes with living in Iowa when we did this study that they were out shoveling snow. So hope never would you think you'd have to control for physical labor, but when you, when you need to get your car out and you're in a study and you decide to shovel your entire driveway and you haven't done anything physical six months, you do a lot of muscle damage in a two-hour time period shoveling out your driveway. Then heavy, wet snow, especially, yeah. It's, it, Backbreaker. it's like one of those things where you go, I never thought to control that. But, you know, you try and control as much as you can. But that is part of being a double-blinded study and recruiting. If you could get one perfect subject and another perfect subject and match them up and do two different treatments, um, you know, yeah, in theory, you remove all variability. But that's impossible. So that's why you have to have a bigger end. So... Great question on the nutritional side. We try to do our best either in some instances very much control it, which then creates a, is that really, you know, possible? Or if we really recruit, recruit well, uh, really making sure we match up on size and all these other things that that really are variables that impact um, your variance in your data set. Awesome. Okay. So I have a two-part question, so I don't lose it too much, but so in general, like what if I... I'm going to, what if I have a 300 gram per day protein that I'm able to uh, diet and I'm able to consistently do that and I'm, I'm going into an overreaching cycle, will HMB have as much of an effect if I'm just like overgorging protein, um, 190 pound guy right here, six foot, you know, so nothing, not your size. So that's a lot of protein and it's obviously very hard to get. So that that's my first part of the question. Like would HMB have as much of an effect? And it seems in general that 
uh, mechanistically, HMB is really more of a, it's more on a signaling side than a substrate side, right? That That's kind of what I'm assuming. Yeah, um, I would I would kind of position it just as you just said there. It's it's it, it's not a building block. It's it's more on signaling and, it, and it's that component to it. Um, and the only substrate I would say it contributes to then is, as I mentioned before, when it is ultimately metabolized HFG CoA, that is a precursor to cellular cholesterol. So eventually, it does have an endpoint. It can be metabolized and, and removed. It can be you know further uh, progressed down that that leucine pathway, if you will, until you get to HMG. And then it's, you know, cholesterol synthesis with inside of a cell, not what we think of like HDL, VLDL, LDL. It's, it's actually that membrane, um, uh, cholesterol. Um, so I don't want to say it's not substrate at all, but yeah, gotcha. essentially it's contributing to that pool mm-hmm. of, of, of cholesterol. Now, when you, when you go back to your, your, your inquiry, so that we get that question a lot of, could I just give more Lucy mm-hmm. in theory you can, but remember Lucy works. From the data we have, um, and I would say the data we have, not just what we have in our own company, but the, the literature as a whole, if you look at what most high levels of leucine does, it's an increase in protein synthesis. And that's why, you know, when you look at proteins rich in leucine, that is why they have this, you know, I've heard it referred to, and I know it's been in several papers, this anabolic benefit of whey protein is, you know, directly to the leucine effect. Um, but there's been a great, uh, there's a great study, uh, I think it's Wilkinson, um, looking at HMB and leucine comparatively. Um, if you look at leucine, there's a, you know, X-fold increase in, in mean protein synthesis, HMB, X-fold increase in protein synthesis, but HMB has the other side of the equation and also reduces the protein breakdown. And you simply don't see that with leucine supplementation. So again, you didn't ask about leucine supplementation, you asked about protein to to even force, you know, you have to look at, all right, let's just assume um, 300 grams of protein equals maybe what, 30 grams of leucine? Mm-hmm. All right, five, at 5% of that, you're getting 1.5 grams of HMB. And that's assuming there's no feedback inhibition down that metabolism pathway after leucine going to HMB. Um, there could be feedback inhibition that pushes back on that. So even if you were to get there, it's better to supplement that 300 grams. You're better to throw the three grams of HMB with it to get the additional benefit of, of the protein mitigating some of the protein breakdown that occurs. And also the benefit on that cell membrane integrity, um, preventing that damage. By all means, you're hitting a very strong uh, protein synthesis stimulus by the protein you're taking in, probably the excess calories you're taking in and the leucine you're taking. But let's look on the other side of that protein metabolism um, exchange, if you will, or that balance. Because no matter what you do, you always have protein breakdown and you have protein synthesis. We're constantly in that spin, right? So if we can mitigate some of or reduce some of that protein breakdown, even in that very well-fed, trained individual, you're still providing a benefit. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. It, it seems like you hit a... Better be training hard, though. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> that's the issue here. So yeah, no, it makes sense. Like it's, it's protein, it's of course harder and harder for someone my size to eat 300 grams of protein every single day. And then you, yeah, there's a lot of diminished returns in terms of cost benefit, um, where you know the the HIV is a little bit better. Now I got to go way back in this in this podcast. You were talking about like quote unquote our HMB. Uh, so I want to actually talk about the ingredient names, which is actually my HMB, lowercase m, lowercase y, uppercase HMB. Um, and so there are a couple of forms, including one that's that's with vitamin D included. And then there's um, uh, there is a free acid form. There's a calcium form. So can you quickly like 
give us, I guess, give us the sales pitch. We've been talking a lot of science, so now, now uh, we'd like to hear what, what these different forms, uh, the benefits are. I think with the vitamin D, it seems it's more on the elderly side, we'll just say. But uh, yeah, let us know. Yeah. So again, great questions. Um, I love that. I'm, I'll never do a true pitch because <laughs> by, by coming from the science side, to me, the science sells it. Right. That's what you guys built your entire platform on. That's why I'm very happy to be here because we can talk the science. And if you use um, not, you know, social media, you know, someone saying, oh, this is crap. This is great. You actually look at the science. This is where the rubber meets the road, you know, as they say. Um, so looking at the forms, originally when we did HB, it was we wanted to simply deliver it in a powder form because that's what the market, that's what everything wanted, you know, even the animal feed side, it was better to be in a calcium salt form. And that's why it's a dry white powder and you see it that way. It's very stable. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have material, even in liquid, we see calcium HMB being stable over 10, 15 years. It's a very stable, small molecule. Um, we always assume that the HMB would just associate from the calcium as soon as it's the gut. Um, but they're, but based off of uh, pharmacokinetic data, when we started looking at um, other ways to deliver HMB. We were we were going to start doing um, some gels and things. We thought, well, let's just get away from the calcium. We really don't need the calcium component to it. If we can, and HMB free acid is a liquid by nature. It's kind of a viscous. I don't want to call it like an oil. I want to apply it. It's a uh, you know, it's that thick, but it's it's a little bit like runny honey. Um, and, and the reason why I point this out is because okay, so now we can do things like um, um, you know, clear beverages, uh, you don't have to out any of the calcium, HMB, you know, settling out. Not that that was a big issue. We just still, we were trying to optimize various forms of delivery. But when we did, you know, we wanted to bridge this into some of the existing safety and toxicity study. One of the questions you always have to do as a researcher is, it is a different form. Is this the same? Um, and when we did that, we realized, okay, the pharmacokinetics are a little different. Oh, and by the way, some of the benefits we're observing when we started doing other studies with it, we're seeing faster uh, absorption uh, at a greater area into the curve which if you think of, I take this right before I train, I'm probably going to have a greater protective effect because I have higher levels, faster, longer period of time it's sustained. So is one form superior to another? I would argue that the HMB free acid is superior to those that are training because if you're taking it acutely right before you train, that's where you want the levels the highest and immediately post. So if you take it before you train, the blood levels are up and they're sustained. But does calcium HMB still provide that benefit? Yes. So that goes back to my HMB and my HMB clear. Um, we also have it under the name in more of the sport nutrition brands, Betator, um, which is the my HMB clear or the HMB free acid form. And now going to the HMB vitamin D, it's my HMB with vitamin D. We offer that, but so many companies formulate with vitamin D um, already uh, that, you know, it's, we offer it both in the combination as well as my HMB with the loss to RIP around the combination as well. Um, and the only reason why I point that out is because you made a comment about it being, you know, more of the older adult. That is, that is very true. We've done some work in in uh, middle-aged women in training, and we see that benefit with my HMB and vitamin D. Um, but I just want to point out, you know, the literature around vitamin D is really pointing to vitamin D um, past that old, you know, bone health, you know, preventing rickets kind of thing. And if you look at a lot of the literature, especially in athletics, um, I was just talking to, I think, one of the... A, a, a brilliant researcher at North Carolina, Abby Smith. Um, she is, she's very much in tune to athletes and female athletes. Um, but just generally, when you talk about athletes, she has a great understanding to the demands nutritionally and some of the things we talk about, about core nutrition and what they can do. Um, you look at what they're doing, they're analyzing um, athletes, um, 
before and after their season for vitamin D status. The reason why is there's more and more literature coming out every year, it seems like, of individuals that you think about, you think athletes, oh, they're getting tons of sun exposure. Even athletes in, in Australia, um, there's been a study, there's one in Miami, I believe, too, where they reference this, this kind of um, indirect decrease in D because of the promotion of protecting your, sun, or protecting your skin from the sun. So use of, of sunscreens, long sleeves, you know, staying indoors, doing some of your training indoors. You see this vitamin D drop. You also see that relating to performance elements. So there's a lot of research now with NCAA, or there's getting to be more NCAA um, kind of trainers and, and, and those that are responsible for the nutritional dietitian uh, kind of element of these, these programs, looking at athletes and saying, make sure your vitamin D status is adequate and not just preventing deficiency, but sufficiency because it directly relates to function. So again, going back to our data, our data just happened to be that example, how we discovered this. Do I think that same thing applies to athletes? I definitely do. Every athlete I've worked with and I've consulted with, again, I talk about some powerlifters I've worked with. I still work with um, athletes as kind of an old hobby you know, of mine of people call me and ask for nutritional advice. I've worked with triathletes to master swimmers, to professional football players, to baseball players. You know, I've, I've consulted with athletes and I almost always give the same speech about you know, proper nutrition and that. But one of the things I always point to is what is your vitamin D status? I mean, you guys are constantly training indoors. You're doing this. Your vitamin D is there and you're playing about, God, by the middle of the season, um, we see it a lot in hockey players. By the middle of the season, they start seeing this detriment performance. We assume it's training volume and, and performance volume, but it might actually be related to vitamin D. So it's not a very expensive supplement. Just make sure that you're, you're getting an adequate amount of vitamin D at it's not a very difficult thing to get tested, get your vitamin D levels tested. And if it's, you talk to your doctor, look at the normal ranges and look it up in the literature. I'm not here to diagnose or treat. I'm just saying if your vitamin Ds are, are above that rickets level of, you know, like in the, in the single digits is terrifying. If you're in the teens, it's pretty scary. But if you're getting up into 30, 40, 50, um, good, that's great. But if you're down in that, you know, 20 range, you might want to think about taking more. And that's why I go back to, although H and B and vitamin D um, yes, the studies are in that skew older. Um, it's something that we definitely point to athletes and and those for muscle function purposes, you better have sufficient vitamin D because I don't care what supplement you're taking. If you're not addressing that, that's going to be a problem. So H and B will still help you increase muscle mass. It still does what it, it's supposed to do, just like the other nutrient. But if you're insufficient of vitamin D, I would argue you probably have issues with, the, you know, whether you take high amounts of protein, it's not going to fix your vitamin D status. So again, it goes back to, we know these things from, you know, single studies, but sure, for realists really to vet this out, like we've done with the older adults, we'd have to do an H and B vitamin D in training adults. But again, I think you could point to the literature and see the benefits of H and B in the young athlete, um, as long as they're training hard. Um, and then you could point to the data that's out there on vitamin D in, in athletes and say, yeah, this is probably why we should be taking vitamin D with it. Incredible. I, I don't really have any further questions. I kind of got my my 300 gram protein overload question. And so I thought that was important. I'm, I'm fascinated. I think, yeah, this has been an incredible episode. Like you're completely welcome back on here. Anytime you want to talk about a study and we will just be tear it apart. <laughs> Can I ask a question that's a, that's slightly off topic, but tangential to this, that I think is still kind of relatable. Um, so there's a lot of, I, I, one of the things I really enjoy about the industry right now is there's a lot of data-driven training. There's a lot of uh, influencers. Uh, Dr. Mike Isriatel is a very prominent one who's making a lot of content that is supposedly, well, it is data-driven. Data 
Um, but one of my worries is that a lot of the data sets that we're working off of are not always super relevant to the actual trained athlete, I would say. Uh, and one of the big things that we talk a lot about is, is protein dosage, uh, total protein for the day. Uh, and I generally just tell people to eat their body weight and protein. I don't think you can go wrong. Like what we were saying before about by over consuming protein. However, uh, you know, quite often we're faced with data that shows, I think over 0.8 grams per pound of lean body mass is probably where the, the, the limit is. But in terms of intensity of training, uh, do you think that there's a lot of, uh, maybe I would say like status quo or uh, do you think that there's a lot of industry standard takes that could change if studies were pro produced at higher intensities? I, I think there, I think it's in kind of both camps, right? I think you're, you bring up a great point right now is, um, we always look at protein as, oh, you know, more is better, more is better. And that really came down to for so long, so many people were not cognizant of the amount of protein they were intaking, right? So by default, they were probably taking in less than what they really needed. So when we start talking about optimal amounts, um, I really, it comes down to those variables you're talking about. Yes, a, a, a bigger, stronger, I, I should say, um, training hard um, individual, if they're bigger, if they have just more muscle mass, their demand is gonna be much different. That's why I kind of start by talking about the RDA of that being ridiculous for someone my size. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's other that's there that we forget. We forget about the intensity of the training, the amount of damage you're doing that you needed. Um, I will always point to, you know, good sources of quality lean protein are always going to be better than, you know, inferior. And what I mean by that is highly processed. Um, unfortunately, if it has other macronutrients or poor quality protein in it, um, it makes you question then even more if you're training hard and you're getting some uh, substandard protein sources, it's even more important that you, you supplement with products that are very much targeted at delivering high quality protein in an easily digested format. So in other words, like your, at, at least your, your hydrolyzed proteins, you know, you're get, getting protein in your diet. Um, it's, it's not as hard as it used to be, right? There's so many sources and there's so many great tasting, um, products. Um, and I only point that out because I think the, the is, is kind of between the two sides of this equation or the sides of this story is one is let's make sure we actually know what, you know, testing athletes at various, um, size and intensities. Right. And, and I don't think it has to go down to each sport or anything like that, but you have body type, you have the amount of muscle mass and you have the amount of intensity that person's going. I do think those studies are needed. I think there's been some great studies that have been done over the years, even looking at what the dairy council has done to, you know, point out how, you know, Chocolate milk could be used for recovery, but that's just, again, that's, that's a marketing tool. I think there's so much more science that could be done there. There's, there's some brilliant researchers that have been around protein metabolism that'll point to it and say, as long as the individual's protein requirements are being met, you don't need excess. But you, you do know what your exact protein requirement is. So how do we figure this out? I think that's our duty. Um, and I say our duty from a standpoint of research and scientific community not the duty of individual consumers or companies to do that, but where does that funding come from? It's going to have to come from these companies that have a vested interest in the claims are making of more protein is better. Um, let's really put, you know, put that to the test, but also let's put it to the test of are those people that are doing these things consuming enough protein or could they make better strides by having, it goes back to my analogy. If the machinery is there and you're not adding 
like, you know, my analogy of, of sitting at this house being repaired. If there's no building blocks in the front yard to build, everything's there to work. You have a problem just as much as you have one where you have all the building blocks sitting around and there's nothing on to build. Um, that's what I mean by two sides of this equation. It, it's easy for us to point at um, the underconsumption, but it's also let's look at it and see what our true demand is and let's meet that and find ways to maybe not require it though every single person has to have an individual study done, but let's start grouping this stuff together to understand to your point in this in this your 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 listeners, what really is needed by the bodybuilding community, the strength community, for the demands they put on their body, what is their real protein requirement? And let's let's stratify that on body size too, and not just uh, weight, but fat-free mass. Um, you know, how does this all equate? And what's the what's the best equation? Because since the '90s, I've been hearing, oh, it's you know, 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, and then I heard, oh, you want at least a gram per kilogram of body weight, and then you know, it's it's evolved. I've heard, you know. You want three times that. And I've heard people say, oh, no, you, you're still fine with the RDA because, you know, you, re, you, you recycle so much protein and, you know, autophagy dumps so much amino acids into the system. Show me the data to say that that's true for a powerlifter, a bodybuilder, or or somebody doing CrossFit or any other, you know, high-intensity program. I just don't, There, there's great data there, but I think there's a bigger answer that's yet to be. To be. Yeah, I 100% uh, agree with you the, with the concept that uh, there's no reason to go over, you know, the reasonable amount that we need to match the intensity. But in the same conversation in these last two hours, we've repeatedly talked about people need to be training more intense than they probably already think that they do. They probably need to kick it up a couple steps. Well, in that case, how many of these studies have been putting those participants at that level and then still been saying, because I, I, I think, you know, if we say 0.8 grams uh, uh, per pound of body weight, is probably similar to about a gram per pound of fat-free mass. It's, 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 you know, hopefully most people are not over 20% yeah, body I, weight. I, I, right? Yeah, for kilo, yeah. yeah, for pound, yeah. yeah so I, I think, like, we can pro all probably agree that around your fat-free body mass in protein is probably a good amount. But if you are actually pushing the boundaries, right, and everyone wants to think that they are pushing the boundaries, uh, but... If that is true, how many of these studies are really pushing? I, I'd, I'd like to actually kind of go back and look at the mm -hmm. studies and, and see how many of these were really pushing them. Because, uh, you know, I, I'll go back to, you know, when Dr. Yeager was talking about his studies. I mean, that you know, they had these guys training in groups. They were pushing each other. These guys were going so much further than where I honestly see most young athletes in these, day, these days on their own in the gym. So... I'd love to see that happening more often. Not that it's accurate to a lot of athletes in today's day and age, but so that we can get a better idea of what happens when athletes actually train right. at speed. And let, let's make sure we're we're being safe here too, because when we did those studies, one of the biggest things is that, that that was you know they were they were streamed and they were you know they were under care of an expert. Um, you know we don't want to just send people out there and and you know two steps forward, let's do damage, let's hurt ourselves, let's get injuries, let's let's risk life and limb. The reality is, is, you know, most people need to be cognizant of what their limits are, uh, but then also not be afraid to push the training to a point that really is closer to your, I want to say right at the limit, but out of your comfort zone is what we're talking about. We're not talking about dancing to the very extreme of the cliff and, and not stepping off. We're just talking about get outside your comfort zone and push the training. Um, and, and with that, and again, I'm trying to protect us here a little bit too, is Anytime you do something with an intense training protocol, you should always talk to a physician first, right? We just get that out of the way is we're making the assumption people are doing that. But 
let's also be honest here. Most people don't go much farther out of their comfort zone. They think, oh, I'm training hard because, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever justification they have. But in reality, most people can push their training harder than what they do because there's a reason, again, why I started by saying, you know, there's a reason why people are in plateaus. It's not, it happens to people that train very, very hard, but still there's a point in their training or a point in their nutrition or their sleep or some element to what they're doing isn't allowing for them to properly recover and push the envelope. So many times though, it is the progressive overload periodization. I mean, as a power for you know this, you got to have, you got to have these micro cycles, macro cycles, and meso cycles all structured out. And if you don't know what those are and you're saying, well, I've been plateaued, I've been doing the same program and I try and push my bench by putting a, you know, some forced reps or some negatives in there. Come on. There's a whole bunch of great, especially, I mean, my day and age, we didn't have apps on our phone to do this. Uh, some of the apps that are out there, like Juggernaut and some of these other ones, it's amazing what these people are doing to put out there, um, you know, programs that help you really see through and go, oh, I guess I don't do the same workout I ever do every week. Every Monday is my bench day. Every, you know, there's some excellent programming in, a, in an app that you can carry in your hand and you can take the thought process of the research out of it. Um, listen to what Price Plow says about supplements and nutrition. Get one of these apps and you've already beat half the battle of why there's complacency and but. Yeah, Mike, there's actually this app, Juggernaut AI. It's, it's actually an AI app that oh, writes you writes your programming for you, and it's, it's incredible. Brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But it's funny to me because I would say uh, back in it's Sean's day and age, if people were just training hard, I mean, that was that was what drove results, was getting after your training partners and telling them to stop, you know, yep. I'm not going to curse right now, but stop <laughs> being a wuss about your training. And and, and that was enough, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think I was a lot the tail end of that, and that's, I mean, I, I, it's easy to be up here and, and be complaining about kids using AI on their apps for their training in today's day. But you have there's so much at people's disposal with the internet now uh, that I think intensity. Really I mean, the elite fitness systems on the oh, yeah. side, all the way to you know, wasn't that long ago when Bodybuilding.com had great content. I mean, I don't I don't know them well enough to know, but there was there was content and programs on all kinds of platforms, um, and that's the beauty of access to information. And then there's 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 just, I just brought up one app name. There's numerous apps that have that. So, um, you know, there was definitely a, an evolution from, you know, you got your program from some guy at the gym. You, mm -hmm. uh, you might've got a program if you paid a hundred bucks to a trainer and she had, you know, the most recent recommendations from ACSM or ACE, you know, and even those, you kind of looked at it and went, I do a lot more than this already. Yeah. Um, now we have so much technology where we can, we could really dial in our nutrition. We can really dial in our, our programming. Um, and, and quite frankly, there's apps for sleep. There's apps for everything you could possibly think of to dial in, to make your results the best they possibly be for you. Um, and that's, again, that's why I keep going back to this. I love being here because this is the one I'd listen to. I pay attention to price plow. Um, I, I love it because you guys, again, go back to the science and, and it's not a sales pitch. It's just, this is where, this is where we talk about science. And if we talk about the science of the ingredients, that in essence is a sales pitch is what we say matches when the consumer uses the product, it matches the story that's being told or the data that's being presented. Then you have truth in your marketing, you have truth in your product. And that's why HB has been here for over 30 years um, because there's truth there. Uh, it's not all the data is exactly the same, but then again, it's, if you look at the consistency and the lion's share of the data set, it's very well supported in the literature that HMB, when there's a stressor, it works. Um, and, and to have this platform to talk about it to people that are just coming into the community, 
Um, that's fantastic because, you know, the straight community is always evolving. We have people coming out, you have people coming in. And what used to be old, if people don't know about it, it's it's a great tool to use. Thank you so John, much. Well, thank you so much. I, I was just a couple of years ago when I, told, I was telling Ben, we need to get serious about the podcast. You are literally the exact definition of the type of person we wanted to pull out. Like, where have you been? You've been stuck in the lab too much. We need to get you out here more often. So thank you so much for coming out. This is exactly like what, yeah, what we want to do on the Priceful Podcast. So it's incredibly exciting. Uh, are you out there on social media? Where do we find you? Like, what's your... Uh, I, I, I open the... Uh, yeah, I I think we have people on our staff that will tell you, point you my direction, but I don't do much on that platform or on social media platforms. I'm sorry. I'll well, do it. No. There is an entire HMB Instagram if people are looking yes, to, yes. to learn about that. CSI, um, HMB, my HMB. Uh, we have team H my HMB. Um, we have great athletes that do a great job of sharing content, their training, how they use um, my HMB. People I've mentioned, Brad Gillingham, uh, Brian Dermody, Sam Dancer, Aaron Stern. Um, there's just there's just um, a, a whole host of athletes of different the different disciplines they participate in and and my gosh they they are some amazing athletes we have the privilege to work with. Awesome. Uh, will you be at the ISSN event? You met, you mentioned a couple of researchers that are usually down there. Yep, I typically go. I was there last year. Um, I don't know my schedule just yet. I have some other travel I'm doing too. So we'll see how everything kind of fits together. But yeah, typically I'm at Supply Side West. I'm at ISSN. Um, there's uh, couple of international shows I go to as well. Um, cool. I used to go to the Arnold and Lippy every year and walk the floor and talk science with people. I love that. Did quite a few, um, you know, the early days interviews and stuff like that that were more on that platform of a podcast. But um, yeah, it, it's 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 something I love being around this industry. And I, I do a lot more on the research side attending conferences. And, and what I'd say is more of the business to business than business to consumer. Um, but again, I'd love going to the shows like the Arnold and the, the Olympia and Fit Expo. Um, those are all, you know, great venues to to see what brands are out there, to see athletes out there utilizing it um, and performing, and it's, it's fun. Well, we'll have to link up if, if we're at the same one soon. For sure. Love yeah. That. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the opportunity.